Harold Abrahams was poised to run the 100-meter dash on behalf of Great Britain in the early 1920s Olympics. And his story is memorialized in the movie Chariots of Fire. Perhaps you remember the scene when he is lying on the training table. His trainer, Wally Massabini, is giving him a rubdown to loosen his muscles for that great race. It's a very somber moment. And Harold Abrahams said in the presence of his trainer, Ten seconds to prove my existence. And I'm not sure what I'm even running for. In saying that, he is saying in effect what all of us say one way or another eventually in our lives. That there's something missing in our lives. Mankind is afflicted with dissatisfaction and anxiety at times and restlessness. Reminding us of what St. Augustine said when he said, You formed us for yourself, praying to God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are born dissatisfied. And it's what Christ has done for us that sets us free from the bondage of our restlessness and dissatisfaction. Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of John, chapter 6. We've been looking at the book of John lately, especially chapter 6. And in order to set the context for the passage that we're going to concentrate on this morning, we're going to begin where we started last week with the 26th verse of the book of John. John chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do? that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The gist of this section of Scripture, as we saw last Sunday together, is that it's by faith alone that we know God. It's not about our works But it's about the work of God on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. And that sets the stage for the further conversation which Jesus has with this multitude of people. This multitude, remind you, those people were those whom Jesus fed miraculously the day before. It was still fresh in their consciousness what Christ had done. And they had wanted to make Him king. And they show up, and they're asking Jesus, what other thing are you going to do for us? So let's read, beginning in verse 30 through verse 35. They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. This passage that we're considering today begins with this multitude, this crowd of people calling Jesus to prove himself. They demand divine proof in order to believe. Perhaps you find yourself in that camp. Perhaps you find yourself laying down the gauntlet for Jesus and saying to Jesus, prove yourself to us. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, these were the people whom Jesus had just performed a magnificent miracle for the previous day. He had given them a sign. And remember that in the Gospel of John, the term sign is used to describe the means whereby Jesus shows us who He is. God, working through Christ, shows us who Jesus is. That Jesus is Himself, God become man. And so, these people are rather rude in the way they speak to the Lord. They're really off base, of course. Let's look at verse 30 once more. They said therefore to Him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you. Now, Jesus has already performed a sign for them. And it didn't elicit the kind of faith that was necessary for them to be saved. They believed, but they believed on a very superficial level. They did not make a full commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they still wouldn't be asking the kinds of questions that they are asking Him in this text of Scripture. What doesn't appear to our English reading eyes in verse 30 When they begin their question, they say, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? And actually the word you comes at the beginning of the sentence. And what that would have noted to the people who heard Jesus ask this question is, those people were saying, it's on you, Jesus. The emphasis is on you. It's up to you, Jesus. We're demanding proof from you, yet more proof than you've already given us before. How short-sighted these people were. And even in our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, we too are many times very short-sighted, quickly forgetting what the Lord has done for us, just like these people had done. They were victims of what I would describe as more-ism. They wanted more He had just fed them. What more could they have wanted? Well, look at the way in which Jesus hears them speak in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They were saying, in effect, Moses fed Israel in the wilderness wanderings for Forty years, you've only fed us one time. And remember, Jesus, 
that Moses fed hundreds of thousands of people for that 40-year period. You've only fed us one time. They were also saying, Moses is one whose bread came from heaven. That's a real miracle, Jesus. Your miracle came from a boy's lunch. They were saying, Moses' bread is divine. You've given us cheap barley loaves. And what we know from studying this period of history, that barley was the cheapest grain which could be found to make bread. And they were saying, you're going on the cheap, Jesus, in the way you're feeding us compared to Moses. And they're saying, in effect, prove that you are superior to Moses. Well, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Pretty brash. That's actually wrong for us or anyone else to demand a sign from the Lord. In fact, Jesus, when he was approached by the religious leaders of his day, when they wanted a sign, they demanded a sign, is what the Scripture says. And what Jesus said in response is, I'm only going to give you one sign, and it will be the sign of Jonah. Now, what was that sign? The sign of Jonah was that Jonah was swallowed by the great fish. He was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then at the end of the three days, he was regurgitated back out of that fish. Undoubtedly, he died during those three days. And he was resurrected, in a sense, as he was belched out of the belly of that great fish and washed ashore. What is that sign that Jesus is talking about? Jesus Christ died for our sins, was punished. Jesus Christ died a spiritual death, as it were, when He was on the cross. But then after three days, He was raised from the dead. This is the sign that the Lord has given to us. But we have a tendency to want more and more. Listen to what Martin Luther preached in his day about this passage of Scripture, about this crowd of people which demanded a sign. This people who demanded further proof, further divine proof of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, they love God as lice love a tramp. Far from being interested in his welfare, their one concern is to feed on him and suck his blood. Our love for the gospel is like that. We seek nothing but gluttony and our own selfish interest. The gospel is loved on account of greed, not on account of righteousness. Now think about this. Transfer yourself from Martin Luther's day 500 years ago to today. Things haven't changed a whole lot, frankly. Because there is a widespread emphasis within the world of Christianity on What's in it for me on the part of people who come to worship the Lord in places of worship like ours? What's in it for us without thought of why we were saved to begin with? Why did God save us? Why did He send Jesus? He sent Jesus to give us righteousness through the work of Christ as we trust in Christ so that He might be glorified through our lives. He says 
on more than one occasion in the Old Testament. It is I who blot out your transgressions for my own sake, for my own glory. And so we need to guard against a mentality of more-ism. Wanting more from the Lord, more from the Lord, more from the Lord. And understand that what the Lord wants us to see is who He is. He is God. And He has called us to be His servants. To be people whom He loves for sure. But also people that He has given a mandate to serve Him. Today... We see a lot of this in various forms, this moreism, as I have described it. I'd like to read one verse from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says about these men who are false teachers, they're men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That sounds like these folks... In John chapter 6, doesn't it? Godliness is a means of gain. And the idea being is that if we do those things which we would understand to be godly, the result is going to be that it's going to be to our gain. Now, the Bible does say a little later in the book of 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? It is. It's the greatest gain. So, Don't mishear what I'm saying or what the Word of God is saying. We do gain more than we can imagine when we know who Jesus is and we come to Him and we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. These people were still struggling with the identity of Jesus. After all, He is the Son of Man. And in effect, what they are saying to Him when they're asking Him, What are you going to do, Jesus? They were really bold, if not rude, in the way they spoke to Jesus. They were saying, prove yourself, Moses, equal at least, or superior, and we will put our trust in you, which you claim is your right as the Son of Man. Well, it is his right that we trust him. He has proven himself to us already. He need not prove Himself to us again. He proved Himself to us in His work on the cross and subsequent resurrection from the dead. He has proved Himself to us. He's given us everything we will need in this life to live it as we were created in the first place to live it. To fill us with Himself. And we will enjoy that for which we were created as we serve the Lord God. Well, Christ had a response to these people. They demanded that He prove that He is who He says He is. In fact, that He be proving Himself as being one greater than Moses. And certainly, He surpassed Moses by eons. So look at what Jesus says in correcting their misunderstanding of who He is and why He came. Look at verse 32. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now, Jesus, in effect, is saying to these people, 
all that you said in your sentence is correct except the subject, the verb, the direct object, and the indirect object. In other words, it's all wrong. In their case, the subject was Moses. They were saying that Moses was the one who had provided the bread for them. But who is the provider? Well, Jesus corrects it very clearly when he tells us that it's my Father, in verse 32, who gives you the true bread out of heaven. They were also wrong in their verb. Because look at what they said in verse 31. He, speaking of God, gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And the tense of the verb there means he gave it. It was a temporary gift. And then when Jesus speaks in the last line of verse 32 of what God the Father has done regarding feeding us with bread that lasts in terms of its satisfaction in our lives, my Father keeps on giving you the true bread out of heaven. And then the direct object in their thinking was the idea of bread without any modifying word in front of it. But look again at the last part of verse 32. My Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. Manna was magnificent for sure. It was given to them, remember, six days a week without the bread being given on the Sabbath for a whole 40 years. Amazing. And it was really delicious, undoubtedly, because it had the appearance of dew, but it had the taste of coriander seed and honey. It was tasty to them, but it was temporary. The moment they crossed over the Jordan River, there was no more manifestation of manna again. But what this says is, what Father gives to us, our Heavenly Father gives to us, is the true bread which comes out of heaven. It's not something that is of the world. It's otherworldly. Well, we understand that the world cannot satisfy us. We see this in people like Harold Abrahams, whom I mentioned, and we see it in various people who are prominent and various people who are not prominent, where they wrestle and they struggle, they pursue the things of the world. They're always chasing Chasing some goal, whether it's a material goal or a relational goal or an educational goal. They're always seeking that one thing that will finally satisfy them. When there's only one person who can satisfy us. And of course, that person is none other than Jesus himself. Look again at verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. This is the incarnation here, isn't it? In verse 33. What is the bread that comes down out of heaven that gives life to the world? Well, we know it's Jesus. I love what J.I. Packer says about the incarnation. He says, wonder of wonders, the deity reduced to a span. A span is 18 inches. Can you imagine The God of the universe fitting himself inside an infant. But he did for you 
and for me. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who are under the law. Jesus Christ became one of us at the appointed time for the express purpose of redeeming us. That is the message of Christmas for sure. Baby Jesus is the bread that man most deeply craves. That is the answer to the cravings of mankind. It's not to be found in anything which the world can offer. It's only to be found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the bread who has come down from heaven. Now consider the crowd's response to what Jesus has just said. They make a quick turnaround. And that tells us that we can be questioning Jesus. We can be poking on Jesus, as it were, demanding things from Him as if He were our heavenly bellhop. But what we know is that in an instant, our eyes can be opened. And evidently that occurred as we look at verse 34. They said, therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. They wanted that bread because they recognized it is eternal in nature as opposed to temporal. It's not the bread which they had eaten the previous day. But it was a bread that would satisfy and keep on satisfying. And they were eager to receive that bread. Do you know, if you cry out to the Lord, you petition Jesus to give you Himself, the bread from heaven, and you truly mean that, you understand that you are called to put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, which you can be sure of, is that he will respond to such an invitation. Let's look at Christ as he complies with their cry of help. He gives them an option to exercise. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. Now let's dissect this statement that he makes. It's the first of the seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. There are six others. Just looking forward a bit, in the ninth chapter, he describes himself as the light of the world. In the tenth chapter, he describes himself as the door to the sheepfold. He's the gateway into a relationship with God. He goes on to say in that same chapter that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, foreshadowing his sacrificial death for us. Then in the 11th chapter, he talks about himself being the resurrection and the life. And then in the 14th chapter, he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And then in the 15th chapter, he says, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. So in each one of these I am statements, he's revealing an aspect of who he is, which is a reflection of God himself. He is God come in the flesh. And this, as we've seen, is the reason 
that John wrote this great gospel is to introduce us to Jesus in his full deity as well as his humanity, to introduce us to him so that we can see he is the one who can bring satisfaction in our, to our lives. And he's the only one who can do that. Now, let's look at that simple statement in verse 35. I am the bread of life. This is literally the way it would be translated. If we took it word for word, this is what we would hear if we read it in the original language. I, comma, I am the bread of the life. There is a definite article which is not translated in any of our translations that I have found before the word life. I am the bread of the life. The world offers poor imitations of life. It's no life at all. It's portrayed by itself as the good life. The life that really is the life that's going to bring you satisfaction. What flashed in my mind was, I don't remember, I think it's the corporation known as Sandals. Have you ever seen those ads on TV about a place that's just incredibly beautiful? I don't know where it is, but somewhere in the Caribbean probably. And people are having a blast there. And certainly God has given us His creation to enjoy. He's given it to us. So I'm not making any comment about that. And vacations are nice. I hope you have a good one next year. I'm not talking about that. But those things, you go and have that vacation for a week or two, and then you come back home to El Paso. Right? Where we've got a lot of beach, but no water. But the reality is, those things don't bring satisfaction. The things of the world, lasting satisfaction. The Lord is the one, because He is the bread of the life. The life of God. Jesus uses this very word when He says that memorable statement, where He says, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. I have come to take the boredom out of your life. I have come to take the restlessness out of your life. I have come to take the anxiety out of your life. I have come to lay down my life, which is the embodiment of this kind of life. I've laid down my life on your behalf, and I, in fact, am going to exchange my life on the cross for your death. And then... I, after having been raised from the dead, I'm going to transfer my life into you because I'm going to come and live in you, not for a while, but forever, so that you can fulfill your intended purpose, that being to glorify me. What a gospel this is that we have. He came out of heaven and became one of us. He suffered all the indignities of being human, divesting himself for that period of 33 or so years of his divine rights. Not of his divinity, but of his divine rights. He had to submit himself to the Father to do as the Father sent him to do in order that he might secure our salvation. And he did it willingly. He did it gladly. He did it with joy. As the writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. It was an endurance race for Jesus in order to secure our salvation. We too 
when we follow Christ, enter into a marathon of sorts in this life. And the thing that helps us to endure, the thing that helps us to persevere to the end, is that He's with us. And He's not simply with us, He's in us. And His presence in us empowers us to face all kinds of trouble. And we do have troubles, but we're able to face them with hope. Why? Because He's in us and with us. And He's not going to leave us nor forsake us. He has promised us as we travel through this life together with Him. He says, I, I am the bread of life, meaning there's no one else who can fulfill the bill that I have fulfilled. And then He gives the formula, if you will, of how we can know Him as the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What is Jesus saying? I'm the only one who can really satisfy you. Going back to my introduction about Harold Abrahams. And by the way, he did win the hundred meters and won the gold medal. But you know his counterpart in the movie, Eric Little, was a true follower of Christ. And he sought not to run his heat for his event for the hundred meters because his heat was run on a Sunday. And we might think he's a little legalistic, Eric Little, but he said to the Prince of England and to the Olympic Committee, I'm sorry, I cannot run because my Lord would not have me to. And they did every kind of arm twisting imaginable to get him to do it. And he said, I'm sorry, I cannot do it. One of his Olympic teammates from Great Britain came to him and said to him, Eric, would you like to take my place in the 400 meters? He had not qualified. He'd never run a race before in any kind of significant competition in the 400. He was not trained for it. There's a big difference between the 100 meters and the 400 meters. Try it sometime. You'll see the difference. The 400 is like a sprint all the way around. We know 100 meters is a sprint, but tack 300 more meters on it. And so he was able to run. He won that race and a gold medal. Now, this is what we know about Eric Little. He was a man who said about his desire to run when his sister Jenny was trying to talk him out of even trying out for the Olympics because she was a missionary. They came from a missionary family to China, and he had committed himself to go to China. And he said this, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I was created for this, Jenny. We're talking about him today. He's a great example. He ran and he won. He stood by the principles of what it means to follow the Lord. To say no to yourself in order that you may say yes to Him if necessary. And he did that. But God used him tremendously and still uses him. After it was all said and done, Eric went back a hero as did Harold Abrahams. But you know what Eric did? He did what he promised God he was going to do. He wanted to do. He went back to China. And he served the Lord there. He was among many Western missionaries 
who were captured by the Japanese and put into a prison camp. It was there that he ministered mightily, especially the children. He was a hero, remember, an athletic prowess that was unmatched, really, in many ways in Great Britain. He was from Scotland. But nevertheless, he developed a brain tumor, and he died in that Japanese prison camp, unheralded by the world in his death, but in heaven, raised to a high place of approval because of his decision to trust Christ. We don't know what happened to Harold Abrahams. There's no evidence that he found his fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The odds are that he lived out his life continuing to search why he existed. He tried to justify his existence in running the hundred meters. And he did a beautiful job in it. He won the gold medal. But he was still searching, I'm sure, when he died. Because he did not understand that Jesus wants us to keep on coming to him. That's the idea. We're to continually come to him. And we will not hunger. And we are to continually believe in Him. And we shall never thirst. And the word translated never in verse 35 is something that Jesus uses. It's a way that Jesus emphasizes something in the strongest possible way in a negative. This is what He literally says. He who believes in Me shall not never thirst. What an invitation to us. If we come to Him and eat of Him, as it were, for our own sustenance and for our own survival and for our own satisfaction, and then we drink of the water which He affords us, the water of life, we will never, ever hunger and thirst. One last thing about what Jesus says when He says, He who comes to Me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Take note of the fact that he does not say, those who come to me will not hunger. Those who believe in me will never thirst. He uses the personal pronoun, you, or he, in the singular. He, you. It's a personal relationship which we have with the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives us adoption into the family of God. Well, the world offers more to us, more restlessness, more anxiety, more dissatisfaction, and it teases us. And remember, because it's under the control of the evil one who is the master deceiver. He's been a liar from the beginning. And we're continually drawn to those kinds of things because the lure of the world is so strong. But the call of Christ is even stronger. And He sets before us today the opportunity for life as opposed to death. And I'm not talking just death physically or even spiritual death after life, as difficult as those things are, not to mention eternal death, but He offers us life now if we come to Him and do as He says. Believe in Him and trust in Him with all our heart. Let's pray. This morning, if you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
This message is for you. He's saying to you, I love you. I'm asking you now to open the door of your heart to me. Make room for me in your heart. And I will come in and I will become your master, your Lord. I will be the one who fulfills you. Nobody else or no other thing can. But you must come in humility to me and believe in me, trust in me. Give yourself to me. And I, in turn, will give you the bread that lasts forever, eternal life, in my person. Lord, I pray that those who do not know you here today will approach you and humbly receive you and your forgiveness as they trust in you for eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.